Welcome to the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, and wisdom centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, right here on AM 1160, The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Welcome into the family room. We're so glad to have you with us. I am Mari. I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hey, Mari. And we are missing Craig again. He's up to important family things, though, he so we'll give, him a, we'll give him a bye. Because this is the family room, and he's doing That's family things. That's how it is, family stuff. Exactly. So we have a fascinating show today. We have got an amazing journey, a journey of a gentleman who God took from Wall Street to a parish to become a priest mm-hmm. and even further than that. Yeah. Um, and his story is incredible. Um, and just listening to the way that God wraps together and weaves together his experiences, both positive and negative from his life and helps him um, find a calling as a priest is absolutely incredible. As you listen to his story, as you heard, heard about him and, and we spoke to him, what kind of things struck you? Uh, it just, if ever you doubted, the statement that there are no coincidences. If you ever had a split second of doubt that that was true, I would encourage you to listen to this show. Yes, exactly. Or as I say, there are no, that all things are God incidences. God incidences. That's easier for me to say, right? Yeah, that all things. And, you know, and he'll talk, we'll get to hear him talk about how with God, all things are possible. And I think he's a great example of that. It is the truth. He is the walking truth. If you wanted, if you wanted an example, you could you could look it up. And so, so who you say would you look up? Yes. Well, uh, let me introduce to you and to our listeners, Father Dan Rehill. And Father Dan Rehill is the pastor of St. Catherine of Siena Parish in Columbia, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Uh, he's the dean of the South and the exorcist for the Diocese of Nashville. He's a native of Mineola, New, New York and a graduate of the University of Dayton. Father Rehill, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say Dan Rehill. Yes, in his earlier worked, incarnation. Right, yes. Worked uh, in, in, in the global trade and finance for American Express and Citicorp. So some heavy hitters. Yeah. A successful guy in that space is, is an impressive character. Um, and he worked as a, dire- a sales director for a corporate communications firm uh, for three years also. So if if you, I think I kind of pointed it out, if you are the astute person who recognized that we're talking to Father Dan Rehill, but sharing the bio of Mr. Dan Rehill, <laughs> then then you're set up. You, you caught on because we're going to go on a journey in this next hour. We're going to go on a journey that takes us from uh, from Wall Street in New York to a Case Lane in Columbia, Tennessee, and from Citicorp and American Express to St. Catherine of Siena, and from squeezing money out of people <laughs> to squeezing the devil out of people. Oh. That's a terrible analogy, but but that's what we're going to do. It's an amazing, amazing story. So so listen, there's so many things that we're going to learn in this in this next time. There's a little bit of time together. So so get a cup of coffee if that's what you do. But get ready because we're going to hear the incredible story of Father Dan Rehill. Father Rehill, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Before we get into uh, the show at large, would you mind starting us with a prayer, please? Not at all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, thy well-beloved spouse. Infuse into our hearts and minds your gifts of wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and perfect deference to your perfect will. Yes, all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
Father, to the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Father, thanks again for being with us. Um, we spoke uh, about a journey from Wall Street and, and Citicorp and American Express to St. Catherine of Siena in on Case Lane in, in Nashville, Tennessee. That's a long way on a map. And it's a, it sounds like it might be a long way as a faith journey also. Can you share a little bit of that with us, please? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It, it was a journey, and, you know, I was away from the church for about 20 years and came back in Medjugorje back in 98 and then had to start integrating that into my life, um, which was actually the tricky part. And then um, this priest who I was going to for direction, um, this little Polish priest said, you know, you might want to be asking the Lord if he has other plans for your life than banking. So I started, you know, asking, praying that prayer every day. Is there something else you want me to do? And of course, I didn't hear anything for the first week and month and even after a year. But then after about a year and a half, I heard a voice say, come follow me after uh, communion one day at Mass. And I realized it was it was him because it was nobody. It was audible, but there was nobody near me. And this is what got me out of Wall Street and on the path to looking at least and in the process, you know, I, I was still doing things like I had always done things. Like, you know, you take control and you figure out mm-hmm. the end goal and then you find the solution to get there. <laughs> and, of course, that, that's not how it works. But I didn't know that because I didn't know anything. So I got spreadsheets, put them on the wall about all the religious orders and their charisms and where they were located. And... um and most importantly, how long it took to become a priest. Ah. And, you know, the, the bigger orders, like the Dominicans and the Legionaries, 12 years. Mm-hmm. I said, well, no, definitely not those. That's too long. So as it turns out, Diocesan Priesthood is the quickest. <laughs> I didn't really have a, a heart for Diocesan Priesthood, but I'm like, you know what? It's the fastest way. Let's do this. And so I, my first stop was I walked into the chancery of the diocese that I I grew up in and said, is the priest here available? And she said, he is. Go ahead in. And when I walked in, it was the priest who had married me. I had an annulment at this point. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me and said, you're not called to the priesthood. Go away. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and okay. I said, okay. Well, I, I asked the Lord to make it clear, and that's pretty clear. Uh, but I knew that was just for for this particular place. So I went back to the religious orders and started flying out to see them. And very quickly, I was getting shut down. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody would be like, no, you're not called here. Go go home. And so I went back to my church and I said, Nobody, nobody's, there's no place available, it seems, for me. And he says, well, what, tell me what happens when you go. I said, well, I sit down and I start, you know, I start interviewing them about their order. And he says, oh, well, that's the problem. You're there to be interviewed, not to do the interview. So they're probably highly offended that you are interviewing them. I said, oh, okay, so I have to go, I have to switch gears here. And eventually, I wound up after 9-11, I, I, my apartment was about four blocks from the Trade Center, so I wound up having to leave New York, and I, I met a priest who invited me up to Boston, went up to Boston. Um, that was crazy, because I went up, like, I remember I got there on the Feast of the Archangels, so end of September, mm-hmm. and by, by, by New Year, was the whole Shanley scandal broke. Right. Mm-hmm. And so all, every day for months was a new horrible story in the paper. 
And here I am living with this priest, and all the tongues are wagging, and it was just awful. It was a terrible place to be. But the priest was very good. He was very uh, holy. He was very resilient. He didn't let it bother him. He just kept doing what he had to do. And he eventually said, you know, you should really probably go to this place, Holy Apostles in Connecticut, because you can go and get your philosophy done without being connected to a diocese. So I did that. And that got me, once you get in there, then people, they treat you like a free agent. They're all trying to wine and dine you to come uh, to their diocese <laughs> to, to join, right? Vocations are hard to find. So you yes. find somebody who's already educated and then already has the philosophy, and they were thrilled. So that was the past. Um, initially, I did not like the first place I went. And after two years, I left, and I did a discernment retreat with a group of contemplative hermits in the woods of Nebraska. I wound up joining them for five years, and so became a contemplative hermit. Wow. Now, when you go into diocesan formation, like most guys would say it's pretty hard because they're not used to being told what to do and when to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be here and have to do this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like college. You actually do have to show up for things. You can't just skip a class. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you don't have anything going on, you can go get a coffee. You can go watch a movie in town. You can go to the mall and pick up a pair of running shoes. You have a lot of freedom. Religious life, there's zero. Yep. There is no freedom. So if I want to go for a jog after dinner, I have to ask permission. And then sometimes he would just say no. On principle. And I would go, why? And he'd go, because I said so. And it's like being five again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, I see how this works. And that's just to kind of form you into this mentality that, you know, everything is obedience. Mm -hmm. Whether you understand it or not, it's obedience. So that formation was much harder. Uh, like when I went to seminary, I was driving the um, the uh, little convertible um, Lexus SC430, sort of like a sports car. Uh, and they said, you have to get rid of this car. It's too flashy for seminary. Well, that was easy. You know, it's easy to get rid of stuff. But to change your mentality and the way you do things is so much harder. So formation in religious life was much harder. Um, but... It was also very fruitful, and this charism of this particular order was the cross. So everything was to be offered up to save souls, and, and so they welcomed suffering. Um, that's something that's really not taught in seminary. The seminaries today are very good at forming the Good Shepherd. They're not so good at forming the Lamb of Sacrifice. Mm. So that, for me, was a very important phase of formation. And when it was all said and done, it took me 12 years to get ordained. So the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> He's good with numbers. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, as we listen to your story, it is so fascinating to see all of the ways, you know, you tried to be obedient from the beginning, but you had to learn a path of obedience. You oh had to gosh. learn what obedience actually really, really meant, because I could totally see all of the rest of us. You know, you had this... Um, quite a number of years, but close to 15 years in the business world first, right? Where you're probably very much in charge. You're used to doing things, setting the agenda, as you said, putting together a business case and a business plan. And so learning obedience and, um, and then it looked like a lot of doors were closing on you. So is that, okay, am I being obedient to say, okay, God, that must be you. But, uh, you know, I understand that for you, there, the message with God, all things are possible is a really special message for you as you, as you contemplate that scripture. Is there, is there more around that message and why God chose that as a message for you? 
Well, that actually happened when I, I went to confession in Medjugorje. I knew I had to go to confession. I knew enough of my faith, even though I was born in 65, so right on the heels of Vatican II, mm-hmm. when everything kind of, in New York anyway, was very mired in weirdness, and um, the interpretation was a little goofy. So I go, and I, I'm looking for a priest that's not going to be judgy. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I still feel like it's the same priest I dealt with in grammar school, and they were they were pretty. Yep. It was a different breed. Anyway, so I go over to the church and I see this priest. His name is Father Brandemir, and he is um, he's tan, he's handsome, he is smoking a cigarette, and he's telling jokes to all these church ladies that are laughing at his jokes. And I'm like, this is the priest. He's this is my guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> and you said this is very lenient on me. You said this so is in Medjugorje, Father. Yeah, yeah, right outside St. James Church. And oh I'm my like, God! Can you hear my confession? He says, "Of course." And um, you know, he, we started, and he still was smoking a cigarette. And I said, "Are you going to put out the cigarette?" Like, <laughs> I feel like it's weird for me to do a confession with you smoking. And he just looked at me funny, put it out. Um, and anyway, so I I do this life confession, and at the end of it, he absolves me, and he says, um, "I think you're called to be a priest." And I said, "What?" I go. Maybe you don't understand English as as well as I thought you did, because it was a very salty confession. And he said, no, all things are possible with God. So he was just he was just speaking what he was getting from right. the Holy Spirit. And right. I was like, I don't I don't think so. But thanks. But it starts. You should light up again, Father. <laughs> what? I said you wanted to say you should light up again, Father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something else. Um so the funny thing about this, in a God way, is, you know, I went back 19 years after this experience as a priest, and I took a group of pilgrims from Nashville, and one of the excursions was to go to this church in a place called Tialina that has the famous statue of Our Lady with the sort of Our Lady of Grace looking. It's You see her whenever you Google Medjugorje, this, but she's not in Medjugorje anymore. Hmm. She's at this church. Actually, she never was. When the communists... Um, came in, Father Yozo, after he got out of prison, was put in this outside parish to keep him away from Medjugorje. Yeah. And at his parish is where they had the statue. And so the statue became like the face of Medjugorje, even though she was never there. But anyway, we went to see the statue. And I pull up, and the bus driver says, you know, just a second. The pastor wants to greet everybody. So he comes out, and it's Father Brandemere. <laughs> now, I remember him because this was a life-changing moment for me. So, of course, I would remember him. But he looks at me and goes, oh, you became a priest. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 19 years. Wow. 20-minute confession 19 years ago. And I go, how do you remember me? And he says, I've been praying for you. (gasps) Wow. I was just like, wow, that's crazy. So we had coffee and caught up. And uh, he doesn't smoke anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just such a like tying up the bow on the on the gift that was just amazing that only God can do. It's that it is amazing. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, Father, if I could, I w- you can say no, but um, I would like to go back even a little bit farther and ask. You said that you were away from the church for twenty years, so it sounds to me like you were involved in the church in some more than just rote way, and then drifted. What what was the what was the reason for the drift in the beginning? Well, I mean, I was, yeah, I was in the church, but I was a kid. Okay. 
I left when I was 10. I was okay. actually assaulted by a priest. So I made a conscious decision okay. to never go back to a church if that's what's going to happen there. And I didn't tell anybody till I was in college, but um, it was easy where I lived back then because we, we used to walk to church. Mm-hmm. I walked to school. So I could say to my parents, yeah, I'm going to this mass, but I would just go to the park. Got it. Yeah. You know, it's just it was a different time. Mm, definitely. So listeners, if you are just joining us, you're here in the family room with Father Dan Rehill, and we just got to hear an amazing um, example of how with God, all things are possible and just a beautiful way of God showing up in uh, profound ways in Father's life and having a priest on the other side of the world pray for him for many, many years that God's will would be done in his life. So um, uh, this is just a beautiful story. And so, you know, one of these things, uh, one of these words that come out for us is the word docility. And you mentioned obedience. You said everything is obedience. And um, did you have a Damascus moment that helped you be more docile to God's prompting and more obedient to God's prompting? Uh, well, that would be the, that would be my Medjugorje. Your confession. Yeah. Yeah. The, the actual... I had no, I had no appetite for the church or for anything like that. And I, I, you know, it's funny when, when you're a little kid and you're growing up, everybody's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? A fireman, you know, baseball player, whatever. In the seventies in New York city, Donald Trump was the king. Hmm. He, and he, everybody loved him. It wasn't like a, a party thing. Right. He was a really great guy in terms of fortifying the city, making the city better. He's building these great buildings. I remember one year the, the, the uh, outdoor skating rink broke. It was broke for right. like three years, and, and the, the city didn't fix it. And he just said one day, you know, I want my kids to skate. Can I fix it for you? I'll do it myself. I'll pay for it. Three months later, this rink is open. Hmm. And, like, so I was like, I want to be Donald Trump. <laughs> now, you say that today, and people get so offended. But <laughs> but, but it was different back then. And, and I, I had this, for whatever reason, I had this mindset that I just wanted to get rich and live in the city and have that life. And that's what I pursued up until this this day in uh, October of 98 when I arrived in this place and, and woke up the next morning completely different. Hmm. Like I had such peace. I had, uh, you know, when you work on Wall Street, it's a lot of aggression mm-hmm. and there's backstabbing, there's conniving. It's It's a very different life. And I, for whatever reason, I thrived at that. But th- this was a moment where everything just washed away. And that's when I said, I'll, I wasn't going to stay the whole week. I was going to leave the next day. But because it was so amazing, the feeling I had, that's why I stayed. And that's when I came back to the church. Mm. And when I say when going back to New York is when you have to really do the work. You know, I had to redo my schedule in my life. And I, I went up walking to and from work so that I could pray the rosary. And I would go to mass on my lunch hour, and I joined the Wall Street Young Catholics Association. Oh, wow. I got rid of a bunch of friends that were not healthy for me, and so it was a lot. It was a big, it was a big transition, but one that I wanted to do. So I just, you know, once you put your head down, and go here we go. Then I was in. And why did you even go to Medjugorje at the in the beginning? It sounds like you you weren't really bought into this whole thing, and you were going to leave after a day. Why did you even go? Well, I had been renting a villa in Amalfi, and a friend wanted to go to Medjugorje, and she said that it was dangerous still from the war. Mm-hmm. 
and you know, I'm looking at a map and I'm thinking, well, it's right across the Adriatic. Mm-hmm. It probably has the same food. It probably has the same wine. It's probably just as nice as Italy. But why not? But it wasn't. <laughs> you get into that town and suddenly I'm like, I'm surrounded by old ladies praying the rosary. This yeah. is not for me. <laughs> wow. I love that. I mean, that image, that image of God taking you from a villa in Amalfi, taking you across the sea and then plunking you in this mountainous little village in the middle of, um, actually, I guess it's in Herzog. Yeah, when I went, it was in it was in Yugos, I went in Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia. I went to Medjugorje in 1990, so I went before the war, and you went after oh, the war. And what's beautiful to me is what you're describing about what it felt like to be there. When I arrived in Medjugorje in 1990, I felt like my soul was at home. It was an incredibly peaceful feeling, and I felt like it was a place where my soul felt at home. Was that kind of your your take? Yes and no. I mean, I I didn't have a lot of verbiage in the soul arena, ah. but but I just knew this was extraordinarily different and good. Yeah, and I wanted it. Um, it's funny when you don't know what you don't know, you don't know. But this suddenly is like, wow! I didn't know this was an option. I didn't know you could feel like this: this happy <laughs> and this joyful and this peaceful, and no anger in your heart, no shame, no guilt, no none of it. So that was. That was different. And, you know, I was just there last week, and it's it's not the same as the first time for me because I think that was a, a special, special grace moment, to yeah. get me over the hurdle. But it's still there. I mean, it's just it's the closest you can get to heaven um, outside of mass on the planet. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Look, I'm going to – could I ask a couple questions? So you you were very successful in, in on Wall Street. You had to have some sense, you, you know, you said when you got to Medjugorje, you're like, well, I didn't know it could be this good or this peaceful. When you were successful climbing, you know, doing what you were doing on Wall Street and, and kind of getting after what you wanted to get after, which was get wealthy and, and, and have a particular lifestyle, was there a sense of peace or at least accept feeling, okay, hey, I'm doing what I want to do? Or was there that nagging thing there, but there must be more? Well... I carved out a pretty good life for myself and really was living the best of the best, you know, Uh, summers in the Hamptons, winters in the Caribbean, um, everything, you know, and then I got divorced and I'm alone. And I remember sitting in my apartment thinking, well, what was the point of all this? Like, I'm I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. So why am I not happy if I've got everything I wanted? But I'm not happy. So where does the happiness come from? So I was asking philosophical questions, but I didn't know the answer. And probably asking them on a on a, on a philosophical plane versus a, versus a spiritual plane, or or like what is the purpose? It's just like, hey, this doesn't feel good. I got it. So yeah. okay, I I I think I asked that question because the the whole idea of. Um, we talk to a lot of guests and, and certainly a lot of people, and we have a lot of listeners who have that kind of that pricking in their heart that it's like, okay, I've got all of this, which I kind of planned, but I still, as you say, I'm not happy. Why, you know, why is that? And what, what is, uh, you know, wh- where am I headed? Um, as, as you had, as you had this moment, this sense in Medjugorje um, and, and you did your confession, wh- was there a point 
was there a point or were there points in, in that whole process where you kind of felt like you needed that you were resisting? I know you told the priest that maybe he should brush up on his English because <laughs> he might not have understood what you called a salty confession. Um, but um, were, were once he gave you that and you're like, yeah, that's probably not right. Were you still of the mind that there was a path you wanted to walk or was there some resistance like to just go back to what you were used to doing? How did you manage to do all of that? That's, you know, that's a really interesting thing because, or not immediately, but very quickly, I had a distaste for what I was doing. Mm. Mm. So the same thing I used to do and enjoy, I now don't enjoy. Mm. And I started to see more, well, first of all, imagine, I suddenly went to confession after 21 years. So I finally have opened my eyes to seeing the truth about the reality of my life and the life I'm in. And it's ugly. A lot of it, I'm like, this isn't good. And so I'm very unhappy. And then I remember um, the last three years of my career, I did an expansion loan for a public relations firm and corporate communications. And the woman is amazing. Um, And she was more than doubling her sales numbers every year. So I was just like, what is she doing? It's just growing like gangbusters. And after she got the expansion loan, she said, you know, we worked really well together. Would you want to come over and run the sales team? And you could be the sales director. Now, this is a company that's open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And they're on, I think, five continents, Mm. uh, the client base. So Mm -hmm. it was so different from, you know, Wall Street, the bell goes off. Boom, done. (laughs) You're like the rabbit out of the gate. You you work your eight hours and you go home or you go out to dinner and entertain clients. Um, And now this was this was so different. So I I eventually went up taking this job. But. At this point, now I'm post-conversion, and I remember Hillary Clinton was running for Senate, and she was looking for work from us. And I was just like, I don't want to work with her. And my boss is like, this is your job. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to tell her how I feel, though, uh, if I have to do this. And then she was like, well, no, maybe I'll handle it. You're going to be a liability. Never mind. And it was stuff like that. It was stuff. I was constantly like, this is no longer fun for me. I don't like it. And um, so eventually I got to the point where I knew this wasn't going to work out. And coincidentally, about the same time that uh, November 5th of 2000 happens, and then I know I'm called the priesthood. And so I uh, took November 6th off. November 7th, I resigned. And that got wow. me out. On that note, let's resign for a quick break. Uh, <laughs> we're with Father Dan Rehill. Just an amazing story uh, of a trip from Wall Street to priesthood. Also want to talk about some of the other responsibilities you have. We'll be right back inside the family room in moments. Sponsored by Versprite on The Quest. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see Versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. Healthcare providers should care about health, right? Why then has Planned Parenthood's actual women's healthcare services dropped over 72% in the last 10 years? Abortion is not healthcare. Abortion kills. Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the United States with 700 abortion facilities. And in the 2019 fiscal year, they ended 345,672 innocent American lives. This is an increase of 13,000 in the last year and 25,000 over the last two years. 
To put that in context, that is about half the population of Washington, D.C. Why then does the United States government continue to send the millions of taxpayer dollars in funding and grants year after year? If we don't stop them, no one will. Let's love God by loving life. Show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. Here at The Quest, we often hear how our programs touch hearts and change lives. Now more than ever, people need to hear the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. As a 100% listener-supported station, The Quest relies on monthly donations to stay on the air. Please consider making a monthly donation to The Quest and help us continue to provide inspiring Catholic programming. Monthly donors are the lifeblood of the station. Visit thequestatlanta.com to donate. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is AJ with The Quest. Did you know that we are on a mission to invite, inform, and inspire listeners like you? We want you to embrace your journey and take one step closer to God by not only listening, but engaging with us. In fact, we could use your help with making this vision a reality. I ask you to prayerfully consider joining us as a missionary to help with volunteer tasks at our studio in Roswell, Georgia. If you feel called to help and would like to learn more, please send us an email at info at thequestatlanta.com. Does your parish, charitable organization, or ministry have an upcoming event that you'd like to promote? Advertise it on AM 1160, the Quest Community Calendar. It's easy and there's never a fee. Just visit thequestatlanta.com, click on events, and submit your activity or event. Enhance the success of your community outreach event. Take advantage of the Quest Atlanta's complimentary community calendar and gain more exposure to the Metro Faith community. Submit your event at thequestatlanta.com today. St. Joseph was a man of few words. In fact, not a single word of his was recorded in Scripture. But the Father of Jesus spoke abundantly in his silence, and he certainly gave us a lot to talk about. Want to go deeper? Listen to the St. Joseph series on your Quest app and on thequestatlanta.com. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig, sponsored by Versprite on AM 1160 The Quest. You are listening to Father Dan Rehill, and we just heard an amazing explanation amazing journey that he took or that god took him on from uh being on wall street to now serving in the diocese of nashville tennessee and um, he's currently the pastor of saint catherine of siena parish in columbia tennessee Uh, father one of the things that we ask of all of our guests in the family room is we ask for your favorite family room memory so do you have a favorite family room memory from your childhood that you can share with us well we, um, well, dinner was a little different in my house because my father was a fire chief and my grandfather was a fire um, lieutenant in New York, all in New York City. My brother became a captain too. But they eat so fast. Because, <laughs> you know, they're trained that yep. when the food drops, you, you wolf it down before the bell rings and you have to run away and go to a fire. Right. So that just became like dinner dropped and you just like, Argh. <laughs> you ate in like five minutes, and then you just kind of sat around and talked for a little bit. But, you know, as a kid, go do homework. But I remember in the winters, um, we my dad would make a fire in the fireplace, and we would just lie on the floor, the kids, and kind of watch the fire burn. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I guess they took pictures of us that we didn't know at the time. But today, um, we all have, you know, one of those pictures of us all, like, lined up watching the fire burn. Um, and that, that was pretty cool because not everybody – had a fireplace right 
That's very cool. That's great. I can see it in my mind's eye, and that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for sharing that, Father. So, we we talked about the um, uh, the whole idea of the conversion that that you went through, and but then to a priest. What, was there a sense, or how did that go in your mind and heart? Like, was it? Did you feel that it just wasn't enough to be Catholic again, but you really had to be a priest, or was it? How did you go from, yeah, Father, you didn't really understand my confession to, yeah, I'm going to. I had visions of you at one of those string maps, you know, mapping out which order you're going to join. So how did you get from I'm, I'm Catholic again and, and kind of at peace with myself to, okay, now I got to go map out where I'm going to, what, what priests and orders I'm going to interview next? Well, that little Polish priest, he had me doing a lot of reading okay. of the Church Fathers. He's got me reading the mystics. And, you know, a lot of the lives of some of the bigger saints. And so over this 18 months that I'm waiting to hear from God about if he wants me to leave this job, like my heart was already leaving. Okay. Mm. He was already preparing me to leave. Um, And then he was already placed. Remember, I didn't want to be a priest. I didn't like priests. Right. Mm -hmm. I I said I was abused by a priest. That was not my thing. So to get me to the point where I'm like waiting for him to call me. I think it had to be that way for it to be important enough. I think if it was just a quick, like, yeah, right. go go enter seminary, then maybe I wouldn't have appreciated as much. Um, but by the time he called me, I was I was I was looking, I was hoping that he would call me. Okay. Mm. And so it, it had changed. My heart got changed. You know, changed my heart. Oh God. So that's that's what he does. And of course, if he's going to ask you to do something, you have to want to do it. Yeah. You know, or else it's going to be terrible. Right. That's really helpful, I think, for all of us. You know, even though we may not be called to be priests, there are times when there's going to be that metanoia, right? There's mm-hmm. going to be that full heart conversion. And sometimes God starts by calling you out of something before he calls you into the next thing. And so, you know, I know personally, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, there may be a, something where God is starting to create a distaste for, for you in where, wherever you are, starting to create asking you to let go of certain things or asking you to, um, uh, you know, step back from certain things. So maybe it's the calling out of that happens first and then the docility of your heart before he prepares you and calls you into. Was there also a sense of healing that happened? Because, you know, I am thinking about all those listeners out there who may have been affected like you were by abuse um, in the church. Was there a healing that happened as well, Father, that that helped um, in that process? Yeah, it was it was a while coming. You know, it was like an onion. Like you had to keep going deeper. Mm-hmm. But um, initially in college, I finally started, you know, addressing it head on. And then, um, and I'm surrounded by really good friends. You know, I made very good friends in college, um, salt of the earth kind of people. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, some of my best friends. Um, and then in religious life. It was a deep dive. You know, I remember one day the the, um, the superior came home and he mentioned something that the bishop had requested of the diocese. And it wasn't a big deal. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't something very important, but it, to me it seemed so stupid. And mm-hmm. I, I said something out loud, like, what a something. And he looked at me and was like, that was just such an over-the-top response. Like, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, you should go down to the chapel and pray. And 
what it turns out is that I had forgiven the priest, but I, I was angry with the bishop that moved him like 17 times. Mm. This guy abused 18 people, 18 young boys. Mm. And, and the bishop, you know, I don't know, one or two moves, okay, but 17, are you joking? Right. Like, at what point do you, does your conscience kick in at all? So I was really mad. And so I was mad at abuses of authority. And this particular incident, it was a small abuse, but to me, it triggered me. Right. So I had to now, so I, I asked the Lord, I'm like, what's, you know, what's, what's my problem here? And he said, you, you've never forgiven the bishop. And I said, the bishop's dead. And he goes, it doesn't matter. You need to forgive him for your own help. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he said something to me that I don't know if it was true at the time, but he said, you know, he's not getting out of purgatory until you forgive him. Mm. And I thought, I don't want to be the cause now of mm. somebody's suffering. So I had masses said for him and prayed the rosary for a couple of weeks. And then one day I woke up and I had no burdens to pray for him. So I assumed he was out. Now, and I'm not, you know, we're not the judge. I don't know how it works. It would seem that somebody who you know, push priests around like that would might not even make it to purgatory. I don't know. But apparently this is what I heard in my prayer. So I say that day to this bishop, you know, now that you have a true perspective of what's going on in these seminaries and how screwed up they are, um, I'm asking you to take ownership of that particular seminary um, where I was that was so messed up, where that bad priest was formed, and fix it. Mm-hmm. Like, clean it up. You can do work from heaven. Go do it. Well, don't you know, the very next day, within 24 hours, my dad calls me from New York. And he says, you're not going to believe this, but the rector of the seminary had a nervous breakdown and has been removed. And I, I was like, what? Like, with less than a day. Well, the bishop appointed a new priest to be the rector, and he was an older priest, very holy priest. I actually knew him. My family was, knew him from when he was a pastor in Great Neck, New York. And, uh, but he had no credentials. He didn't have a master's or a doctorate because he was one of those old timers who just, they didn't do that back then. Right. Did well, his... the people in New York were outraged and they were writing letters to all the New York papers saying how, you know, how could uh, you appoint somebody who doesn't even have a master's degree? And the bishop went on the record and said, we don't need any more uh uh, initials after the rector's name. What we need is a father. Mm-hmm. And the, he really, he chose the right guy, right? Wow. And so I was just, you know, you just can't imagine that you're, I'm not saying it's just me, but my little decision to forgive could be part of this huge impetus to, to change a local church, you know, a whole diocese. And uh, I'm sure there were many people praying, but it just, the timing was just so suspect that it was like literally less than a day. That's so incredible. And I'm, what I'm thinking about is once again, you know, God's will will be done and God wants his will to be done. But the docility of your heart entering into that will of God um, had such was was powerful and powerful for you and for your healing as well. That's incredible. And and how beautiful that God allows us to be parts of huge things that he does like that. Yeah, well, it gets it gets a little more interesting because I was supposed to be sent to New York City to help a priest write a book one summer as my assignment. And I was looking forward to that. I'm like, oh, good. I'll be back in my own stomping ground. It'll be great. And about a week before the summer breaks, um, the rector says, 
change of plans, you're going to go to the prison. And it's like a maximum security prison with, with like murderers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't really want to go to a prison. And he didn't prepare anything. I had to go find my, where I could live out there. Um, it was just, it was weird. So I go, and you can't, you can't call prisoners to see you. They have to ask for you to. They have to invite themselves for counseling, and then you can call them. So, I, nobody knows me. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to sit here all day and you know, read a book. Well, they had a retreat, a summer retreat coming up, and most of the guys go to it because you get to go outside all day. Okay. And um, the keynote speaker was going to uh, give this big address, and the day comes, and the deacon who runs the program looks to me, and he says, uh, the speaker's not going to make it, so you have to give the talk. <laughs> and I go, well, what's the talk on? And he goes, uh, life after prison. And you go, I've never been to prison. How can I give this talk? He goes, well, then talk about anything you want. So I get out there, and I look at it. It's all like skinheads with these tattoos, and they all look like they want to just, you know, rip you to pieces. So I open the Bible, and I turn to the prodigal son, and I read the prodigal son, and then I tell them my own story of my abuse and my being rescued by the Blessed Mother and reconnected to her son. And I look up and like half these guys are crying and I'm like, what is happening here? Like I had, I just didn't even know what to think. And then at the end they had some little ritual where we would anoint them with oil and there was uh, like the deacon and somebody else and me. And they all started moving over to my line and I'm like, I'm not ordained. You should go to the deacon. (laughs) But you know, there's just emotional people. They, they, They wanted to connect. Well, I had like, several hundred invites for counseling that got me booked for the whole summer with these people. And as it turns out, about 75% of the men in prison have been sexually abused. Mm -hmm. And they go into massive drug and alcohol abuse. And then to fund that abuse, they go into crime. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that. But now here I am working with these guys, you know, asking the Lord to come into their heart and heal them. And some stories were horrible. One guy was just about 21. His name was John. And he, um, he had a little boy. He was two. And he was in there for, I don't know what he was in there for, burglary or something with, with a gun. And, and he was still getting high in prison, which I'm like, how does that work? How do you get drugs in prison? He goes, actually, you can. It's not a big deal. But he hated his father. His father took him to a brothel when he was about nine years old. Mm. To make him a man. Oh my gosh. And he forced him to smoke crack cocaine and then gave him to a hooker. Mm. So how does the, how does a nine-year-old ever have a chance in life if that's how you, you're, you are at nine years old? Mm. So, of course, his life was over before it started. Mm. Now he's in prison. And by the way, he has AIDS. He's dying. And he has a two-year-old. And I said to him, you know, and he just hated his father. He hated him because he knew he destroyed his life. And I said to him one day, I go, you know what, John, I hate to tell you this, but your son's going to hate you as much as you hated your dad, because he's not going to know you. So from this day forward, every day, I want you to write a letter to your son and date it, you know, for graduation from first grade, graduation from eighth grade, uh, for your first date, for your first uh, prom, for the day you get married, because he was going to die. And 
he didn't have the stationery, so I, I got permission to give him stationery to write all these. And that's what his mission was now, to, to write a note for all the important dates in his child's life. And he eventually did die, but he had those letters, and, and he did send them off so that the kid would have them one wow. day. But it's just a horrible, horrible situation, right? Yeah. Well, listeners, if you are just joining us, you are here in the family room. We are with Father Dan Rehill. Um, and just amazing stories. You know, Father, as I'm listening to you, one of the things that I'm thinking is, is in that situation, God, like you said, you weren't ordained yet, but God was already helping you to help people who were facing great evil. Um, you were helping them to find healing from great evil. And one of the roles that you have that I think is um, a very fascinating role, a lot of people to understand, is your role as an exorcist. So it sounds like he was already preparing your heart for the role of being able to help um, uh, draw out evil, call out evil, uh, banish evil. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes. You know, as you said, he does prepare us for things. And when I lived in Boston, that priest in Boston was doing a lot of deliverance ministry. In fact, the first week I was there, he had a possessed woman come into the chapel and he prayed with, with her and she was crawling on the floor and foaming at the mouth. And it's a Sunday, so this is in between two Masses. Mm-hmm. And so he looks at me and says, well, I'm going to go now and celebrate the um, the 1030 Mass. I'll be back in an hour. And I said, well, what, what, you're leaving? And he says, yeah, just stay with her. Oh, and he left, and about 10 seconds into that, I said, no way I'm staying in here. And I ran out of the room and locked her in the in the chapel. And so he comes back and goes, well, where is she? I go, she's in there. <laughs> but I'm not staying in there with her. <laughs> So that was my first introduction to a possessed person. And then I went up going on a retreat with an exorcist um, in the Adriatic who had the stigmata. And he was doing exorcisms while I was there. So I'm getting more exposed to this stuff. And then, of course, when I got to religious life, that uh, my, my uh, superior of the men was the exorcist for Omaha. So it was just a clear path when you look backwards of all this preparation. Mm-hmm. And uh, which brings me into this diocese, and they didn't have an exorcist. And when the new bishop came in, he he said, uh, "Why are all these priests requesting your help?" I said, "Oh, I go and help them with the deliverance." And he goes, "Are you the exorcist?" And I said, "I'm not the exorcist. We don't have one." And he said, "Why not?" And I said, "The prior bishop thought it would be too much of a burden for one person." And he said, um, "I kind of look at it differently. I feel like you're fighting with your hands tied behind your back." Go to Rome and get become an exorcist. So he sent me to Rome, and uh, I formally got trained, and then came back. And yeah, it's it's um it's an unusual facet of priesthood, but a very valid one. When you look in the Gospels, you know Jesus, I think, is doing more exorcisms than any one thing. If you can right. lump them in groups, right. you know, he's constantly doing them. So it all makes sense as I listen to you say this. It's like. It all makes sense. Um, th- so the question I think I have in in your role as exorcist, how are you seeing the devil attacking the flock today? Are are there some themes that prevail? Yeah, yeah there, there's always calling cards, and of course he's a liar. Right, that's the first thing we know about him. Um, he's an accuser. We know that about him. Uh, but I see the three calling cards we can see in the Garrison demoniac. You know that story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you got, he lands on shore, and there in these uh, in the cemetery of sorts is this wild man who has broken the chains off of the uh, the stones, 
and he's ranting and raving through the cemetery like a crazy person, and he's naked. So um, the first one is um, isolation, division. Mm-hmm. This is something the devil, this is, of course, God wants to unify. The Trinity is one, and God's trying to make a family and make all of his children drawn t- together in one, right? Jesus says, may they be one as we are one. Mm-hmm. He's the opposite. He wants to divide everybody. And if you can divide, you can conquer. Mm-hmm. So there's the division. Um, <clears throat> then there's the nudity. So when you see public nudity, you, the devil is there, right? Um, and what are we seeing in our culture? I mean, it's just a debased culture where people go to award ceremonies. People go to these galas in their underwear, Mm-hmm. And everybody claps and applauds and, and goes, ooh, isn't this amazing? It's the emperor who has no clothes. Yeah. And, and we've, we've become those people. Like, we just applaud it. We now put sin on a pedestal and pay to watch other people sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't believe we're here, but we are. And that's in Romans 1. That I always think of Romans 1 when, yeah, that we're applauding for that, for the evil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And and the third thing is um, is when you see uh, destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So uh, the demoniac was, you know, racing through the thing, destroying things. Um, so when you see destruction, and what did we see during uh, COVID and all these these mm-hmm. riots that are right? right? Uh, right. I looked at it and said, this is this is a, this is the handprint of the devil all over this stuff. It's division. It's the nudity and it's the destruction. Hmm. And that stuff is through the roof right now. So consequently, we across, I don't know about the whole world, but I know in America, the other exorcists that I'm in contact with, we've all seen the huge uptick, particularly since COVID. You know what? When you stick people at home with nothing to do all day, the idle mind is not a good thing. And people start getting into all sorts of trouble. Hmm. And the the exorcisms went through the roof. Wow. The, the also, going on social media, going on uh, YouTube, I had one of my most possessed cases started with a young man who was Catholic who went on YouTube to, tr- to learn how to open up his third eye. Hmm. And he wound up losing everything. Lost his girlfriend, lost his home, lost his job, and was just a possessed person roaming literally roaming the streets like the, the garrison demoniac. He was living in the woods and just surviving on scraps he'd pull out of dumpsters. I mean, you couldn't believe this person was a normal, successful person. Wow. You know, and all of that can make us very fearful, and yet God tells us so many times in Scripture, be not afraid, you know, that he will be with us. So what, Father, what kind of um, hope or what kind of invitation do you do you offer to us to be able to protect ourselves, to protect our families from these attacks? Well, the closer you are to Jesus, the harder it is for the devil to get at you, mm. to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, the radical um, holy are the exception. So the John Vianney's, the Padre Pio's, they were physically beaten up by the devil, but that's a whole different class of people. And by the way, they didn't even care. Because they used it, they used their suffering to save souls. So every attack was a a bigger opportunity to just save more souls. Mm -hmm. If you're Joe, Joe, Catholic guy in the church or gal, 
um, and you're living a good life and you're you're living the sacramental life and you're going to confession regularly, um, you, you don't have anything to worry about. The number one attack of the devil is through temptation, and that's like 95% of his attacks. That's what you have to worry about. It's not about the supernatural stuff. Hmm. And if you do sense him near, I mean, I've been told that just call in the name of Jesus, just call, just out loud, say the name of Jesus. Is that something you, you recommend for people to do if they do sense that evil is near? Yes. Uh, the name has a lot of power. Um, and, and this is the time when you want to use the name of Jesus. You know, the, the commandment is don't use it in vain. Well, this is the opportune time to use it. Yes. Um, the rosary is very powerful. I was getting uh, attacked by this demon that was paralyzing me at night. Mm. I couldn't move and I couldn't breathe. That was the bigger issue. And once I started taking the rosary and leaving it in the bed with me, mm-hmm. it never came back. Mm. Father Rio, we heard a podcast with Michael Knowles. We really enjoyed um, the, the interview uh, on Relevant Radio with Drew Mariani. Are there other resources things that you've done that you could share with us and that we can share with our listeners and put in our show notes and so on? Yes, this is the thing I always forget to do. I am the national director for Radio Maria USA. And I have a show every day called Battle Ready at 9 a.m. Central Time. So 10 o'clock where you guys are. Um, And it's to form people into soldiers for, for Jesus to not just be defensive in the battle, but to go on the offensive and take back what is rightfully God's mm. from the enemy. And if you can't listen, because most people are working at that hour, right. um, you can get it on Spotify or wherever they have podcasts, because after the live show, it gets dropped into a podcast. And, it's, and the title is so, Battle Ready? With Father Dan Rehill. Okay. Wonderful. And this show will also be podcasted. So listeners, if you're listening and you think, oh my gosh, I want to make sure I heard this live, but I want to make sure that my friends and family hear this as well. You can listen to our podcasts as well. Same thing. You can go on to Apple podcast or whatever and look up the family room podcast and hear this one and then go to battle ready and find um, father Rehail's podcast as well. So father, we have really appreciated our time with you today. We thank you so very much. And I know that there's so much more that we would love to learn from you, but we are, we are running out out of time at this point, so hopefully we can speak to you again in the future. But as we close, would you be willing to um, say a prayer for our listeners? Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon this listening audience and open their hearts to receive your Son Jesus more deeply, to want to imitate him, to love him, and to serve him. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Spirit. Thank you so much, amen. guys. Thank, thank you, Father. you, Father. Thank you, Father Dan. We have really appreciated you. And thank you, listeners, for being with us here in the family room, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the family room, sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.